Tonight's reading is from Matthew chapter 19, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those who, those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is God's word. Great God of highest heaven, you are very generous indeed. Your uh, benevolence towards us is extraordinary. Your grace towards us is amazing. The, The munificence which you bestow upon us is wonderful. We thank you and praise you for your generosity and ask now that you'd help us to hear you rightly. That in your kindness we'd understand this parable and our hearts will be changed by it to the honour of your name. Now uh, this parable then, the parable of the workers in the vineyard or the eccentric landowner sometimes gets called that, what do you make of it? A bunch of guys who slog away all day in the 40 degree heat and yet they get paid the same as those who come along and do an hour's work in the evening. It's not even hot. They just probably eat most of the grapes themselves at that stage of the day. 
they get paid precisely the same amount. Do you not read this and feel some of the frustration of verse 12? Do you not feel that in part? These men who were hired last worked only one hour and they said, you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day, the work, the heat of the day. It's not fair, is their comment. Do you not feel that something with them? It's not fair, is it? They get paid the same at a five o'clock as those who've been working since 6 a.m. What is? It's just simply not fair. And what makes it worse is verse 1 of the chapter, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Oh. Is God unfair in how he treats us? making some slog for hours in the heat of the day and yet others do basically nothing and get given the same reward. Is God unfair? It's a slightly unsettling story. Why does Jesus bother to tell us this story? I mean, it's only in Matthew's Gospel it appears. Oh, Matthew, give us the prodigal son. Go on, you haven't got that one. That's a much nicer story. We like that story. This one's, I don't know, what's it doing here? Well, we had included um, in the reading, sorry, I've got to get rid of that. We had included in the reading um, some of the verses from last time. So uh, we looked at uh, chapter 19, the first uh, 30 or verses uh, last time, and uh, we got as far as this reading. And um, uh, if you remember, if you were here last time, it's the, the story of the rich young man who refuses to give up his money in order to follow Jesus. Uh, we get to verse 27. And Peter says, we've given up everything to follow you. Come on, Jesus. What do we get for that? We're your first disciples. We're the magic 12. You know, they'll write songs about us. You know, children in 2,000 years' time will be singing Peter the fisherman and all sorts of things about us. We've given up everything. What do we get? Well, in one hand, there's one sense. This is great encouragement, particularly you get to verse 29. Everyone who's left houses or brother or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Brilliant. We will be rewarded, yes. But, verse 30, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So what, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to say it again, says Jesus, in the end of this parable, chapter 20, verse 16, flips it round, but the last will be first and the first will be last. So we need to understand this because it bookends the parable. It's clearly the point he's trying to make. And so it seems to be that he's saying to his disciples, Peter, yes, you've given up a lot. And don't worry, I notice, I see, you'll be rewarded. But don't be presumptuous. Don't be impressed. Don't be proud. Because those who are first, first my disciples give up a lot, they can end up with nothing. Those who have nothing can end up first. There will be a number of surprises on Judgment Day when I return, says Jesus. So just wind your neck in, Peter, and let me tell you a story so you try and understand it. 
Essentially, I, I was a bit naughty. I mean, we, obviously we sing Amazing Grace all the time. I think this is a parable of irritating grace. Let's break it down this way. We'll look at the generosity of grace in the story, our grumbling with grace, and then lastly, the recipients of grace. Okay, The generosity of grace, our grumbling with grace, and then the recipients of grace. Let's look at it uh, in those three ways. First, the generosity of grace. Uh, it's a parable, and as with many parables, not all, but as with many parables, there are three main characters. There's a sort of God figure, in this case, the, uh, the, the landowner who owns the vineyard. There's a positive example and a negative example. Lots of parables work that way, not all of them. But here in this story, I, I think it is working like that. So you've got a generous master, like God. You've got the fortunate late arrivals, you want to be like them. Uh, and then you've got the grumbling early labourers, you don't want to be like them. Okay, the three main groups in the parable. So let's have a brief look at it then. You've got then this uh, owner of a vineyard, he's looking to hire people for the day, the working day, 6am to 6pm. You might have a break, but that's the working day. And so when uh, we're told, uh, uh, verse 1, he goes out early in the morning to hire men to work, that's 6 a.m. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sends them into his vineyard. About the third hour, so 9 a.m., he sees others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you what is right. No sum mentioned notice. And they say, okay, they clearly trust this man. And then every three hours, out goes the landowner, uh, the, the owner of the vineyard and hires more people. A question, to my mind, is he daft? Has his vineyard grown exponentially during the day? Why doesn't he know how many workers he needs? Oh, he goes out at 6am, why doesn't he just get the number of workers he needs at 6am? Why bother hiring at 5am in the evening for an hour? There is always tomorrow, you know. Now we mustn't push all the details too hard of uh, any parable. You, you get into a bit of a tiz if you do that. But it's not that he's a fool, this landowner. I think what we're meant to notice is his generosity. In the culture of the day, if you're a wage labourer, you're not in a great position. So these men in verse 1 and uh, throughout the story, they're just loitering around. So by the time you get to verse um, uh, verse 6, there are still others standing around at the 11th hour at 5 o'clock. They've been doing nothing all day. You're better off in the first century in the Roman Empire being a slave than a wage labourer. If you're a slave, you get your board, you get your lodging, you get your food, and your family is taken care of. And you know, it's a different, very different culture to 19th century uh, uh, black African uh, slave trade in the time. I mean, all sorts of educated people would be slaves. You see, you're okay being a slave. Wage labourer for the day, you don't get a work, you don't get work, you don't eat. Your family doesn't eat. So when this owner keeps going out and he keeps going out and he keeps going out and employing people, he's very kind. So the obvious thing in this story is that the master takes the initiative, God takes the initiative to serve the the workers from hunger and he keeps doing that. He keeps generously going out to people saying, do you want to survive? Let me rescue you from your famine, as it were, of the day. Okay, so you've got a generosity, uh, generous master. Now what happens then? Well, verse 8, the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, okay, get in the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, going to the first. Jesus, good storyteller. So he builds the tension. Verse 9, the workers who were hired at 5 o'clock, the 11th hour, came and received a denarius. Ooh. 
Now, if you've been working since 6am, you're thinking, ka-ching, he's just loopy. He's got more money than sense, this guy. He's going to throw the cash at us. We'll be laughing. Verse 9. So, verse 10, when those who came, sorry, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Oh. The reward that the master gives is not linked to the work that is done. That's the obvious point of the story. The reward the master gives is not linked to the amount of work that is done. Jesus wants to absolutely torpedo the sort of merit theology which says, I can earn my way into heaven. I deserve it because of my hard work. Jesus wants us to get very clear, it's only ever entry into the kingdom of heaven by gift, by more than we deserve, by generosity. I think Jesus tells us this story because we're meant to read it and slightly scratch our heads. And if God was a man that we met, oh, you could have done if you met Jesus, I know, but if today, today, if uh, today or tonight, (laughs) um, uh, you went out and you met God as a man, you would be bewildered by him, is Jesus' point. He would be so extravagant, so lavish, so reckless with his giving, you would be just bewildered. Who is this man? Is he just loaded? Why is he so extravagant with what he gets away? Why is he throwing his money around to people who have done nothing and deserve nothing or very little from him? Well, he's a bewildering sort of God. He's just generous to people who don't deserve it. So that's the generosity of grace. Secondly, let's look at our grumbling, our grumbling with grace. Now, we're not told the response of those who get the good deal. We're not those who arrive at the 11th hour, turn up at 5 o'clock, do very little work, eat the grapes, uh, and go home giggling with their denarius. We're not told their response. Because the story wants to focus upon those who are irritated by the generosity the focus is on the outrage of the early ones. And as I say, I think verse 12, you've got to say they've got a case. Verse 12, these men who were hired last worked only one hour. You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work, the heat of the day. It's not fair, is obviously what they're saying. And we get that. Now, broadly speaking, of course, it's not always the case, but broadly speaking, in this world, in this city, we operate by this sort of principle. The person who works the hardest, the person who works the longest, or the person who does the most complicated work, they get paid the most. But Jesus wants us to get that in the kingdom, it's not like that. In the kingdom of God, the principle of merit, deserving reward, those are completely swept aside. And it's only by generosity that you and I receive anything. 
And he'll tell us a strange story to get it. Grace triumphs in the kingdom. The undeserved generosity of God triumphs over our labours, over our hard work. So do you see the owner, the, uh, the owner of the, uh, the, uh, the field, the vineyard, then, uh, verse 13, he addresses them with three questions. One, uh, verse 13, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Yes. Is God unfair? No. No one can ever say that. No one can ever say that we've been withheld or God will withhold from us anything that we deserve. It's not unfair. Question two. Um, can't I do what I want, essentially? Verse 14, take your pay and go. I want to give the man who's hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do with what I want? Excuse me, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? I can do what I want. He says, I give my kingdom to who I choose. And then third question, which really is the heart of the issue, end of verse 15, are you envious because I am generous? That's the issue, isn't it? You early birds, you 6AMers, you're envious because I've been more generous to some people than you. I employed you. I paid you a very good wage, you denarius. You've been saved from hunger today. You've got a good deal. Others I've been even more generous to. And you're envious, aren't you? You resent that I've given more to them. That's the issue. Can we just be honest with one another? Aren't you envious sometimes that God gives more to some people than you? Sometimes? I know we're not supposed to say that. But sometimes, doesn't God's kindness to other people just stick in your throat? Wind you up? Make you frustrated with him? Sometimes? Don't you resent his grace just occasionally? Come on, you can be honest with me and a hundred others. Sometimes? Let me push this in three directions. Uh, the first, which is the primary one that the text is going. Uh, the applications of the disciples was this, don't boast. Don't boast. Don't boast in your sacrifices don't boast in your uh, chronological superiority. You are the early believers, others will come after you. Don't, Peter, James, John, don't expect greater rewards than those people in Mayfair in the 21st century will get, just because you were around years before them. And don't resent them because they weren't, didn't give up their boats and their nets, etc. Don't boast about what you've given up, Peter. Don't do that. You will not be shortchanged, Peter. But I may be generous to someone more than you. Even though the scriptures are full of you. Even though you wrote a letter. Two letters that made it to the New Testament. Don't think that guarantees you more, Peter. I may just be ridiculously generous to someone else. So don't boast in what you've given up. 
and sacrificed. The Lord cannot stand it when we boast of anything other than his grace. So for Christians to be proud, to boast of their sacrifices, their achievements, it's anathema to the God of grace because we're claiming credit for ourselves. How you apply it. Large churches should be very wary of being proud and boasting about what they've done more than small churches or sacrificial churches that give up lots should be very wary of being proud via comfortable, lazy churches. Don't boast in what you've given up, says Jesus. Be wary of that. Lasts become firsts by grace. Firsts become lasts by pride, hubris, boasting. Don't do that. Okay, so don't boast or be proud in what you've given up will be one. The second direction, that may not be yours, but the second one I guess is more common. Don't resent God's generosity. Now, you may be too young perhaps to do that, but it's easy to imagine someone who, uh, you live the Christian life for 60 years, virtuously, you're kind to people, you pay your taxes, you come to church, you're faithful, serving for 60 odd years as a Christian, and then you die. Some nasty, selfish, unpleasant character is immoral, fixes banking rates and does nasty things um, uh, all of their life uh, and then age 80 becomes a Christian and is saved forever. Don't resent that. Be easy to, wouldn't it, to say, well, he got to just serve himself all his life and then just sneaks in by the teeth. I sacrifice all my life and and he gets in the same as me. You don't resent that. God is generous. He's been kind to you if you know him. It's a great privilege to serve him here and now in this life. We don't like it, but don't resent it. And then thirdly, more generally, so don't boast about what you give up. Don't resent others perhaps sneaking in. Thirdly, more generally in life, don't envy and maybe this is the most common. Very easy to look around a church such as this one and think, why has God given so much more to him than me? I struggle to make ends meet. and He seems to be going to Bahamas one week, one week, Maldives the next. He's going on to the moon with Richard Branson next month. He has crazy. Why does he get so much? I don't. I just. Oh. Will you ever find yourself thinking they've got engaged? What does he see in her? She's terrible. I'm much nicer. What's the problem? What is his? Never think anything like that. Or sometimes it's on behalf of other people. You know, there's Bill in church who uh, loses his job, is sick, uh, is chronic fatigue, whatever it may be, uh, has to move out of his house, he can't pay his rent. Uh, and meanwhile, over here, Jack's just got everything. 
works two days a week and earns a million pounds. No one does that. But the, um, you know, just life always goes well. And you look at the two of them, you think, Lord, why? How does that work? Why does he get all this stuff? And him, his life is just relentless difficulty. Is it just me? Oh, look, here's my, here's my miserable confession on this one. I just I ask for your forgiveness, really. Um, uh, sometimes I'll go to a, confer- a minister's conference, a pastor's conference, and I look around, you have conversations with people, and they say, yeah, well, I normally have Wednesday afternoon off to go and chop wood in my one acre of garden, and then you know, on Thursday afternoon I take the kids swimming, and you know, on a Monday I always have off to recover from the one service I take on a Sunday. And uh, genuinely, uh, and sometimes I sit there and think, I'm mad. I don't get it. I work so much harder than you. You know, it's a partly a feature of city centre life. It's sort of it's crazy, and everyone here is really busy. Uh, uh, you know, trying to preach four times at different services in the week. And I say, am I crazy? He does very little. He's got no budget problems. He doesn't lie awake wondering what he's going to do about money. What, am I nuts? It's not fair. He, he just works so little, Lord. And he's fine. I start to feel sorry for myself. I start to feel envious. Now look, I don't mishear me. That's appalling. I told my wife this, Carrie, expecting some sympathy. And she looked at me and said, that is deeply unattractive. You really... (laughs) You're a minister, for goodness sake. Repent! (laughs) And she's right. She is right. And I would be just, just devastated with embarrassment to confess that to you, apart from... I think you feel that way too sometimes. Not about churches, perhaps, but about other things. But it is appalling. And we do need to confess that it is sin. We need to repent. We need to change of our envy of others. Let me just spell it out in one sense. I guess you, this is fairly obvious, but grumbling is sin. These, uh, 11, uh, verse 11, these men who grumble, they're not really grumbling against those who have been given the denarius for, for one hour's work. They're grumbling against the landowner. And when we're envious of other people, and think, oh, it's not fair, they don't work any as hard as me, and they've got so much more than me, we're not complaining at them, we're having a go at God. We're saying, I don't like, I could arrange this world better than you, which is never ideal to say to God, his perspective is slightly greater, but that's in our hearts what we're saying. Grumbling against God arranging the world in a slightly unfair way, it's slow-burning anger. And you just need to confess that, repent of it. Grumbling is sin, and you know that grumbling is self-destructive. There is nothing useful about a complaining spirit and attitude. Just a quick show of hands. Who loves spending time in the company of someone who relentlessly grumbles and complains? If you're the sort of person who relentlessly grumbles and complains, no one likes spending time with you. 
My friend has a great phrase. He describes some people as, oh, I really don't want to go out for dinner with him. He's just a morale hoover. (laughs) It's a great phrase. And you know that. Some people, you know you're going to see them and everything is awful. Now, look, don't mishear me. We all have times in our lives which are awful. But if that is the pattern every week, every year, over a 20-year period, you're a morale hoover. And uh, you're not doing yourself any good and not doing anyone else any good either. You know the um, uh, the, the wonderful little story that uh, C.S. Lewis tells, the great divorce, you know, when he imagines it's a journey uh, to, to the next life via hell and heaven. And at one point, um, uh, the man in the story, um, uh, the nar- narrator... Uh, sorry, the man in the story who is the narrator, he's introduced by the tour guide and said, oh, have you met this woman? And this woman, she just lets out this whine. He's like, she, oh, what is her problem? She's just horrible to be around. She's a grumble, he says. And the narrator says, surely you mean she's a grumbler? No, no. She used to be someone who grumbles, but she's done it for so long. And so repeatedly, she now is the grumble. Miserable, absolutely miserable. There's a generosity of grace. He's a wonderful landowner. He gives, he gives, he gives, even to people late in the day who don't deserve it. There's our grumbling with grace. Don't boast about what you've given up. Don't resent people who just sneak it into the kingdom of God at the 11th hour. Don't envy those who seem to have been given more. How do we change? I don't think I'm alone. If I am alone and no one else grumbles and no one else is envious and resentful, this is the most embarrassing evening of my life. (laughs) But on the assumption that I'm not alone, how do we change? We need to know that we are recipients of grace. The only cure for spiritual pride and resentment is to know how dependent you are upon God's grace, how undeserving we are of anything good from him. Spiritually speaking, every single one of us is an 11th hour worker, absolutely undeserving of God's goodness, absolutely undeserving of entry into the kingdom of God. But God has rescued us by Jesus Christ coming and dying for us. And without stating the obvious, the way you get beyond resentment and envy is you just allow that truth to change you. That truth has got to change you. Has anyone ever died for you in this world, apart from Jesus? I couldn't say anyone's done that for me. Uh, a number of years ago, though, I was eight, an eight-year-old boy, and I was uh, helping my dad uh, one day. He was, uh, we were clearing the gutters on our house, and um, uh, um, he wanted a helper, is the way we got pocket money in those days. Uh, obviously, you don't do anything to help AJ, you just sort of dance around and get bored. Um, but I was meant to be holding the ladder and not doing a very good job of it. At one point, I was very bored and was wandering around, and, just slightly just, and I kicked the ladder by mistake, and it wobbled. And it toppled. And my father was on the ladder. And he turned around as this thing started to tumble back. And he had a choice. He could jump off it, but the only place to land was on me. And that would have hurt. And he knew. 
or he could just stay on there. Which is what he did. As he stayed on there and fell. Now my dad, you know, especially the age eight, my dad was as strong as an ox, he was a hero, he could lift us a house as far as I was concerned. He was my all in all, my, my superhero. But he fell hard on his back and for, there was a temporary paralysis. He just couldn't move. And for six weeks afterwards, he'd cracked vertebrae in his back. For six weeks afterwards, my bear of a dad, and he's a big man still, um, was just bedridden. And it was my fault. And the reason he was in that bed was because he didn't want to land on me. Now, I had always known that my dad loved me. He's a man of his generation, didn't often say, I love you, son. But he's just, you know, I knew that, I knew that. And yet, do you know what, when he did that, and I saw him crack his back, rather than see me suffer, I, saw, I knew he loved me. I can't really explain it, it was just different. And rather than being just a self-absorbed, computer-obsessed, eight-year-old boy, I learned to make tea. I mean, I know it's not the hardest thing in the world, but I'd never done it before. And I would take my dad tea, and I would cycle to the shops and bring him a newspaper. Not because I thought I'd pay him back, I'm in debt to you and can, you know, I can repay my debt. You never do that. Just because I wanted to. I was somewhat overwhelmed. Golly, you smashed your back up rather than land on me. You really do love me, don't you? Yes, you idiot. (laughs) Now, why did he do that? Why did he smash his back rather than land on his son? Was it because he knew, he thought to himself, well, if I do that, he might make me a cup of tea? That wasn't going through his head. He did it just because he loves me. It was instinctive, because he loved me. Now I tell you that because, of course, when you know that Jesus has died for you, and you get that, it does fill you with a thankfulness. And you serve him because, well, but just because he's wonderful. And you know that. He didn't die for you so that one day you might do something useful for him. The odd cup of tea for Jesus Uh, You might make a cup of tea for him at church and give it to someone else. You might give up some time. You might give up some money. He didn't die for you so you do those sort of things. They're meaningless. He died for you because he loves you. And when you get that, it does liberate from resentment. It does liberate from envy. It stops you so much comparing yourself to others. How much have they got more than me? Well, who cares in life? Jesus has died to take you with him to eternity. And he loves you. So don't grumble if others have got more. Don't boast because you think you're more deserving of some other Christians. Give thanks. And serve the Lord, not annoyed that you're more hardworking than others. You've given more, you're more committed, just because he's great. Serve him because he loves you. And he's very wonderful. He's a very generous master.
There's generosity and grace. I know we can be tempted to grumble, but we need to know that we're recipients of his grace. It stops us grumbling and makes us say, thank you. Let's pray together. Our Father, there's a sense in which it's thoroughly depressing that this parable is in the scriptures because it shows how perverse our hearts can be, that we would boast of what we've given up for you, that we'd grumble, that even though you've given so much to us who are Christians, we'd grumble and complain that others have got more. But Father, we give you thanks that this parable is here because you do know our hearts. And you tell us this to shake us out of our silliness, our sinful complaining and resentment. Father, would we not dwell upon what we lack, but would we give thanks for what you've given us supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. You love us. You lavish kindness upon us in him. And Father, would we respond not out of debt, but out of wonder, out of thanksgiving, out of praise to you, our great God and Saviour. In Jesus' name, Amen.